What's up, Euphonauts? Originally, uh, I had planned the next episode of The Meltdown, but that just didn't end up happening. Just couldn't make it work. But uh, today, I just want to speak a little candidly about some things, talk about personal experiences, uh, my time at MUFON, and, and a few other things. So... Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll cover some things outside of UFO stories, and, uh, yeah, let's just get into it. So, the first thing I wanted to touch on was my time at MUFON. I joined MUFON, I believe it was in January, and my membership lapsed in, I believe, May. I came on when... Chris Cogswell was named the new director of research back in January. Part of his plans were that he was creating an internal review board. And the idea behind the internal review board was that we were going to look at the cases that came in for the month and kind of cherry pick the best ones that we found. Uh, we were also going to kind of go through the data and maybe clean it up a little bit, maybe make some suggestions about cases that needed re-designating or just cases that were just either really good, really bad, very questionable, kind of call, I don't want to say call people on their crap like field investigators, but some of them were frustrating when it came to the reports because some actually didn't fill out reports, but the idea was that we were going to cherry-pick the best cases. We were going to interview the field investigators, the witnesses, if they would allow us, and we were going to put it into a podcast. And that podcast was going to come out roughly around September. Chris had already been working with Audio Boom to make that happen. He was also in the process of creating an external review board as well, and the idea behind that is he was gathering a group of scientists, field investigators, all sorts of people, experts in all sorts of different areas, and they were going to look at the cases, run them through the rigors, and test them to see which ones really probably were unknowns, or at least the best examples of unknowns that we had. We were also going to be doing white papers on various subjects. Some of them included what ancient aliens were doing, their analysis, their theories and such. We were going to be looking at the effectiveness of hypnosis in alien abduction cases. We were also going to be looking at orbs cases because they do make up a good portion of the UFO reports. So that's kind of where things were starting. We were fine-tuning as we were going along. Well, really, Chris was. We... Um, so when I say we, I mean those of us on the internal review board, which was myself, Chris, Marie Mayhew, his co-host on the Mad Scientist podcast and the host of the Whatever Remains podcast, and Sam Fredrickson from the Not Alone podcast. Basically, we each were assigned uh, a number of states. I had, I believe, 18 states on the eastern seaboard, and you just look at the reports as they came in every month. You look at the quality of them, and, you know, uh, there's a good portion of them that weren't addressed yet from the field investigators and and such, but um, there were a number of cases that I looked at that were um, really interesting. Some of them good, some of them not good. Actually, there were a lot of really, really good ones that I'll, 
that I'll bring up. <laughs> and some of the reports, you, uh, you wonder what people were thinking that they're blatantly trying to present hoaxes or they're really concerned about what may have transpired. There was, for instance, and I, I, I apologize, I didn't write down the actual case, but there was a person claiming that there was an alien footprint on their property in, I believe, Florida. We looked at it. It was the there was only one indentation in the sand, but it. Uh, I believe we came to the determination that it was made by an armadillo. There was <laughs> up in Maine, I believe, case number eight nine six two seven, which was classified as a hoax. A person claimed to see a furry like ape thing that smelled really bad. There was a witness who claimed that two aliens came into their room and branded them. Case number 89606. And then one of my all-time favorites. Case 89590. The otherwise known as Clown Pants Photo. This is where it comes from. This woman had been working on a film in Griffith Park over in, in Los Angeles. She claimed to see this object that was flying around. She actually took a photo of it. A number of witnesses claimed to see this object flying around. It ended up flying away from them. She just wanted to know what it was, but I believe it was the field investigator that said it looked like a pair of clown pants. So the image associated with this, the image that you're seeing online, is the clown pants photo. And... When I was looking at reports after this, when I'd get a string of reports that were just really bad or didn't have much going on, I would just say, everything's coming up clown pants. Clown pants are the new swamp gas. They're the new weather balloon. I want to get that going. Clown pants, people. Let's get it going. There was also case number 89649. Now, if anybody has watched the show Hangar 1, they know of the case this concerns because it happened on Fort Dix Air Force Base in the 1960s. What this was was a follow-up interview with another guy. Basically, they claim that a group of soldiers ended up shooting an alien dead on their base. I don't buy it. I never bought it when it appeared on TV, but apparently they felt the need to follow up, and that's what they did. So, for the good cases, case number 89276. This husband in Massachusetts was outside grilling on New Year's Eve when he noticed five to seven lights, and the number would vary here and there, in a semicircular shape in the sky. They were just hanging there. He called his wife outside to see it, and they both attempted to film it, but uh, the quality of the film was so poor. I, now, I don't believe they attached any of it to it, but uh, to the report, I should say. But it, it was interesting because they claim that after 20 minutes, they just disappeared. They didn't fade away. They just disappeared. So that was one interesting case. I think one of my favorites, uh, case number 89280. This is also in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, in, in terms of the states that I looked at, had the best reports. So shout out to Eric Hartwig, who is the state director in Massachusetts. He, I believe he's the only guy working on cases over there. He does such a thorough job. He 
interviews witnesses over the phone and he posts the recordings, you know, when they allow him to, which seems to be frequently. He follows up. He even goes back into past reports and does follow-up interviews when they get new ones that relate to a past case. So this is one of the best people out there doing work for MUFON. So Eric Hartwig, remember that name. Hell of a guy. Massachusetts has it going on. But there was this guy who was driving home. He was a graphic artist. At first, he sees what he believes is a new construction crane that is being erected on I-91. When he gets closer, he realizes what he's looking at, it's a really large object. Uh, he claimed it was about 50 to 100 feet across, but it was uh, basically chevron-shaped. It looked like a pair of wings joined together without a fuselage. And the interesting thing is, and it's not noted in the report on the website... But when you have access to the CMS and you get the, the additional follow-up and such, what he drew was this chevron-shaped object, but it had a tail fin on the back of it, oddly enough. He said he ended up seeing this tail fin. He also said that another co-worker of his saw it and his wife, in fact, saw it. The sketch is interesting. I wish I still had it. I wish I could share it with you, but it's just a really fascinating case. 89595, this group of kids, and this was a case from, I believe, 67, claimed to see a white disc flying above them. And they had it in their head, like, I, I believe one of them said that their parents claimed if you thought something, the object would do it. One of them asked it to, I think, blink on or blink off or something like that, and it wouldn't do it. But another one ended up asking the object to stop. And the moment that it thought the thought, it stopped just midair. And then it started coming back towards their direction. They ended up running away from it. So that was an interesting uh, historical case, which is what MUFON calls cases that are more than, I want to say, like two or three years old from the time of the report made. There was uh, case number 90476, where two witnesses described seeing a transparent triangle fly overhead at 8.30 p.m. one night. And uh, that, that was a really fascinating report, too. The witnesses seemed pretty credible. And, um, yeah, just a, just a really fascinating case. There are a bunch that I'm leaving out, but uh, these are just the ones that really stuck out to me. The final one... Case number 90463. This witness was driving to work one morning at 6.30 a.m. She sees these yellow and red lights on the left-hand side of the road. She slows down the car and eventually stops. She, she says there was no sound whatsoever, but they kind of made her uneasy. And a bunch of people saw these lights and, and this object, whatever it was. When you dug further into the report after being interviewed by the field investigator, she claimed that she got a telepathic message. I don't remember what it was. I, I don't have access to the CMS anymore, but it was just a really interesting case and one that I think could lead to additional eyewitnesses if they came forward. I'll address that issue when, when we get into the problems I think MUFON has in a little bit, but... 
Those were the cases that really stuck out to me, the ones that I found really interesting or just kind (laughs) of made me think a little bit, made me laugh a little bit. So with the John Ventre thing, when we started, we didn't think that John Ventre played any role in the day-to-day operations of MUFON. We knew we had been removed as state directors of Pennsylvania and I believe West Virginia, but I'm not entirely sure what the other state was. I know he was in charge of two, but I think the other one was West Virginia. And I knew that he was still an inner circle member. So for anyone that doesn't know, the inner circle of MUFON basically is a small group of people that pays about $5,000 a year just to be part of this exclusive group. I don't know exactly what influence they have on MUFON in the cases that they look at or in the relative day-to-day operations, but uh, Ventre's name was still there. I don't know if Chris knew that. I don't remember if I brought that to his attention or not, but it was something that I knew. But again, I didn't think he had any say in the day-to-day operations of MUFON. So the first inkling that we had of Ventre working on cases was case number 90364. This gentleman reported a sighting for a female resident of his... I'm not sure if she lived in the same apartment or house or whatever. Ventre's name was mentioned in the report. If you go on to the MUFON site yourself, you're not going to see it, but his name was clearly listed in the report as referring the case to him because it kind of had a religious bent and if you know John Ventre you know that his cases in in his work he kind of has a religious leaning towards his stuff one of the things in the report is it had a correspondence between is either John Ventre or another field investigator and this woman and they were hawking their book to her I did not feel okay with this, and I mentioned it to Chris. I'm like, Chris, uh, do we know whether Ventre is really gone or what? He wasn't sure, but he was going to look into it. I gave him the case number, and he was going to look into it. On the night of April 13th, coincidentally a Friday, Chris ended up, because we have a group DM, Chris... Uh, Marie, Sam, and myself on Twitter, he called an emergency meeting. Now, we, we would have like Skype sessions all the time to talk about the cases that we were looking at, some of the fine-tuning methods that we were working on and, and coming up with. I got on Skype with him. He tells me that Ventre got in contact with him saying that One, he knew that we were working on a podcast and wanted to know if he could help. Secondly, he told Chris that he was organizing this, the latest MUFON symposium. And at this point, Chris called this meeting. We talked about it. And at that point, we both walked away. We we both said that we were walking away and we all ended up doing that. So that's essentially how it came about. In terms of the problems that MUFON has, I understand people's right to free speech. I don't condone hate speech, though. 
I don't condone the idea that white genocide is one of our big problems here. And when you have people in your organization that do that, you can pretty much count on the fact that their views are going to leave people out from either wanting to report their UFO sightings or want to be field investigators. It's an exclusionary thing. There are other members within MUFON that share these kind of ideals. I'm not going to just name names, but that leads to exclusionary tactics. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. And when you're talking about an organization that realistically should be opening its arms to everybody to report UFOs, you're now saying that this behavior is okay. And it's not. So... That's one big problem that I have. Another one that kind of reared its ugly head is the bias that field investigators have is very prevalent on these reports, mostly when it comes to their classifications, their designations. as And MUFON's designations are kind of almost verbatim what the government was working with with project sign grudge blue book and all that all that stuff there's a variety of them your unknowns are at the top ifos there's insufficient data there's hoaxes there's there's a bunch of other designations here but the problem is is that the field investigators many of them they either don't come at it from a skeptical point of view or do come at it from an overly skeptical point of view. There's no real standard threshold here. It's not very defined what constitutes an unknown versus a known. It's really left up to the field investigator, which is going to skew your results because not everybody's on the same page. With the exception that I that I have said of Eric Hartwig, who is very objective in the way that he looks at things, there are a few others too, but there are also others that end up classifying everything as unknown or there are others that classify everything as an IFO or insufficient data or stuff like that, even in cases that are pretty damn extraordinary. I will tell you, I saw so many reports of fucking Chinese lanterns, I wanted to bug my eyes out. I get that it was New Year's, but I don't think Chinese lanterns are as huge as people make them out to be. Uh, I think one big problem, too, is that I think MUFON would get better results if they worked with their communities a little bit. Doing the monthly meeting thing is okay, but doing other things would probably help. I don't know. I, I don't really have any suggestions there, but get involved with the community somehow. If, if they could do that, I think they would get better results. More people would want to report to them, because I'll tell you, in some, <laughs> in some states, when I see articles saying there's a lot of people reporting UFOs in this state, and I don't see those reports from MUFON, that means they're reporting it elsewhere. I think MUFON definitely has a big image issue that it needs to take care of, and it's not going to take care of it, because the people that are there are there. We tried to do good things. We tried to change things. It's it's a shame, but MUFON definitely needs to work with communities better. It would help out a lot. In many ways, there are a lot of things about MUFON that feels antiquated. 
the CMS itself looks antiquated as hell, and I'm sure it is. There are state websites that are just so outdated. The only thing I will say about them that isn't outdated is the field investigator's manual that gets updated more than anything. But, again, you're talking about a volunteer organization. So, the funds aren't necessarily going to be there for those things, but maybe they are at the same time. If if you have a group of people kicking $5,000 a year to Buffon, you got to be able to do something with it. I think one of the biggest gripes that I had, and one that I voiced many times to Chris, is that MUFON does not know what to do with historical cases. Like, in general, they don't know what to do with their cases to begin with, because uh, beyond investigating the actual case, if there is a strong indication that there are additional eyewitnesses, MUFON doesn't do anything to follow up and find those additional eyewitnesses they don't it's just that one report that could have additional eyewitnesses out there and again it's a volunteer organization i understand but at the same time (laughs) your cases look weaker now because you don't have the means to follow up that's kind of a problem in my eyes at least but the historical cases many times i just see investigators marking them as insufficient data even if there's good information there insufficient data information only well what the hell do you do with a historical case and why the hell do you have people report them if you can't do anything with them those to me are the biggest problems that MUFON has I was asked that if there are any groups out there that seem promising not to me at this point There might be some out there, but I just don't know. And I don't know the scale at which they're investigating reports and such. But MUFON was the name of the game. A lot of other places went out. And a lot of other places are specialty. Like, to the stars, they're a special organization that looks at evidence. It's not going out there and collecting new evidence. It's looking at evidence that has been collected by the government over a period of five years. So, I think that's one area where To The Stars could kind of pick up the slack, but again, they're not that organization. They're not going to be doing that. In terms of promising groups, not really. I don't don't see any at the current moment. Ryan Sprague asked me my thoughts on ancient aliens and the ancient astronaut theory. I think one thing that fails to get mentioned over and over again in terms of ancient astronaut theory is that when you talk about it, you need a modern interpretive lens to look back into the past and say, well, this looks like a UFO report. This looks like an alien abduction. We kind of rely on over-interpretation in many instances to give us what we want. And I think that's a flaw. That's a definite flaw. Also, It's very hurtful to say that man was not capable of erecting the structures that they did. I'm not saying that it wasn't hard work. But to say that aliens gave us the means when you can go on YouTube and see how some of these structures were built is damaging. The evidence is out there, and yet they're still peddling it. And the thing is, is like, 
Ancient Aliens now is peddling the modern stuff too, like the MJ-12 documents. We're, we're going to keep going down this rabbit hole where they keep coming up. They're not good evidence. They're not proven. They're most likely hoaxes. And we need to move past that. I think we need to get our heads out of the freaking past and look at what's happening in our skies now. What's happening to people now in this modern wave of sightings? Who gives a flippin' fuck about the past? Aliens didn't build the pyramids. Aliens didn't build Gobekli Tepe. They didn't build this shit. We did. We need to acknowledge that. It's great to go on TV and talk fantasy about ancient sites and that archaeology and anthropology doesn't have the full story that we could fill those gaps with aliens. No, we can't. So we need to stop doing that. Ancient aliens is good for nothing other than entertainment value to me. I'm sorry if that offends people, but that's the way I look at things and the way that in my research and the things that I have looked at, there's a disconnect between the two. Most of people's UFO sightings have psychological effects. They don't have these physical effects where people are are building shit. Or aliens are giving them the means to build shit. It's not anywhere that I've seen. And I'm sure you could bring cases to my attention where it has happened. But I think it's just more damaging than anything. I thought I'd talk about some of my personal experiences too. If you've heard me on other podcasts, you'll know a couple of these. I think I'm having one on Ryan Sprague's podcast coming up in uh, the beginning of July. But uh, one of the ones that I experienced, I was a teenager at the time. And uh, I was just about ready to go to bed. And I look outside and I see this orange light in the sky. And then it starts moving from side to side. And it would turn its light off, and then it turn it back on. And it would keep doing this in this side-to-side motion over and over and over again. I think I watched it for about five minutes until I just lost interest in it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to bed now then. That's, that's fine. I, I saw it, and I just went to bed. Which is so weird to me, because if you're looking at a UFO, why wouldn't you want to stick around and keep watching it? Weird, but... I didn't think anything of it at the time, but now, you know, I just keep going back and like, well, why wouldn't you keep watching it? Is it just because it's going to keep doing the same stuff over and over again, or is it giving you cues that you should just go to bed now? We've talked about that on various episodes of this podcast, especially the last UFO book club where we talked about aliens and abductions and how there are cues to um, kind of set people on the path of where they need to be in order for these experiences to happen. Look at Mike Cleland, who sees these five alien beings outside his window when he goes to sleep. Whitley Strieber did the same thing in communion, and a, a lot of people do all sorts of weird things. Look at the last episode Those guys heard an explosion, and then they got the urge to just go drive in their car, and look what happened to them. The other one that I have that I'll talk about is from this last November. I was 
actually heading home from a trip out of town, and we were coming up to this like bridge area, and there were I could see these bright white lights through the trees. Well, what the hell's going on? They got road work or something going on ahead, and then we enter this clearing, and I believe we were on a bridge at the time, but over the water there were these three white lights in a triangular formation. And they were really bright, but the weird thing was is like the lights themselves looked to be like square, not like a round light emanating. They looked to be in a square formation. I saw it for maybe three or four seconds, but in during that time, they would strobe in succession. I saw them strobe, I think, just once, but... That was interesting. I don't know whether that was a military exercise or what. We don't have any military bases really around where that would happen. The closest one is Vermont. And that's not to say that Vermont doesn't fly its planes over here because they do. They fly their planes over here all the freaking time. You can see them pretty much every day. You can see them and hear them. So, yeah, I don't really know... (laughs) much about that but it was just really odd and they were flying really low if i had to guess an elevation they were under 500 feet they were really close to the water actually kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some cases that i think are really important and i think really good at kind of pinning the ufo phenomenon as something a little more legitimate than that the first is one that people have heard me talk about all the time. Just It's the case that propelled me. One of them is Lonnie Zamora's case. And I think what makes it so compelling is that not only do you have the physical effects that that craft had on the environment, because there were. There were landing marks. There were allegedly footprints from these beings. It's not widely reported, but I read about it recently in uh, some publications. It's just the credibility of the eyewitness, Lonnie Zamora, the cop, upset at the end of the day because he didn't end up writing the final tickets that he wanted to in order to meet his quota. The guy that ended up retiring from the police force due to ridicule, that guy. To me, that guy is one of the most credible witnesses ever. And I think it's one of the best cases that we have for an authentic UFO. Realistically, there can only be two conclusions. It's either terrestrial or it's not terrestrial. And to me, the folks that are saying that this is a lunar lander, a prototype for the lunar lander, I heavily disagree. And the reason that I disagree is that why would your prototype for a lunar lander be able to outmaneuver the actual lunar lander that they used? I don't understand that. Sure, this thing used ballistic motion when it landed and when it took off. But other than that, it hovered and it was silent. Our lunar lander could not do that. The next case, Travis Walton. It was investigated thoroughly at the time. There are too many indications that this is a really good, authentic case. Whether you want to talk about the polygraph results. Here's my thing. I see people 
trashing on polygraph results when it doesn't work for them and then affirming polygraph results when it does. You can't have your own cake and eat it too here. Either you support them or you don't. You either get behind them or you don't. You don't use them as one piece of evidence that is good most of the time but bad the rest of the time. To me, I think we need to get away from using polygraph results as the ultimate test. Realistically, they're there to fan the flames. If you want to talk about the fact that numerous people passed polygraph tests during that case, then I think that's strong because five out of six of them passed with flying colors. The other one was inconclusive. With Travis, yeah, he failed it. The first one. He passed subsequent ones, but... I don't think Travis has lied about that encounter to this day. I think he is one of the most authentic, down-to-earth UFO witnesses walking today. Kind man. Clearly, at the time, a bit of a rebel. Did what he wanted to. Didn't think things through. Did without thinking. And this time, it ended in a transformative experience for him. And one that he has interpreted in a really fascinating way, in which he believes that the aliens were ultimately bringing him back to life because their propulsion system ended up killing him. So I think that's a fascinating case. And the fact that it occurred in 1975 when really abduction accounts aren't a big thing. They're starting to become a big thing. And his sighting alone will help to bolster it as one, but it's so unique. It's, and to be fair, a lot of sighting reports are unique. They're atypical, many of them. But this one involves different kinds of beings, not just the gray type, but also the tall blonde Nordics, which, you know, there are issues there too. But I think that's one of the best reports we have. Betty and Barney Hill as well. I think the fact that they did investigative work on their own, that the hypnotists that they work with, regardless of what your opinion on hypnosis is when it comes to UFO reports, he ended up, after every hypnosis session, he would block their memories of these events so they wouldn't cross-contaminate. And I think that that method is really effective when you're talking about alien abductees and their experiences and exploring them through hypnosis. I think when we all look at the fact that hypnosis is used in these kind of cases, I think we tend to believe that they're ultimately bad because it's not a reliable means of exploring these cases. I disagree. A lot of the times, these witnesses will have conscious recall. David Stevens, Glenn Gray, they had conscious recall except for one area where they were suddenly on the right-hand side of the road and then they moved to the left. And they have no memory of how that happened. Some could see that as questionable in terms of they're making it up. But I'm not one to believe that hypnosis is entirely bad as a way of exploring these experiences. I think there are ways in which the subject can be broached that doesn't contaminate. I think their case is a strong one 
and it's the first reported abduction case. Those that believe that they're not telling the truth or anything like that, it's the first. It, there are no archetypes for it before that. So I think that alone also makes it a really strong case. The final one is Kenneth Arnold. Now, I've talked about Kenneth Arnold. The other people I haven't really gotten into their cases, but I will be at some point on the show. Kenneth Arnold did everything that he could to investigate the case as it was happening before his eyes. He used every tool, every method to investigate the sighting. So, to me, he's kind of like the poster child for a UFO investigator, at least one that's witnessing a UFO at the time. Not everyone's going to have the means to measure how fast these objects are going, how big they are, and, and such, but I think having an objective mind during the event is important, and Kenneth Arnold had that. I want to give you guys kind of an idea of what's upcoming for the show. So next week, I'm having Matt and Phil from Semi-Intellectual Musings on, and, and we're just going to, you know, shoot the shit, talk about uh, the social factors behind the UFO phenomenon, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. They're they're great guys. They have a great podcast. Go listen to Semi-Intellectual Musings. It's a fantastic podcast. We're going to be doing Roswell. That's the plan for... The bulk of July. And it might take me a little bit longer just because there's so much material to read for this one. We're going to be covering the reverse engineering aspect, the Philip Corso aspect from the day after Roswell 2. Uh, the Aztec UFO crash is one that I've been wanting to explore for a while, so we'll be getting into that. The plan for August is to look at UFOs and pop culture within TV, film, and music. So... You have that to look forward to. Rich Adam has expressed interest in coming back. So I think we'll have him back on again soon. He he seemed to have a great time. And hopefully we'll have better audio this time around. We'll do it a little bit differently. We're going to be doing another episode of The Meltdown. It's coming at some point. We're still trying to get things nailed down. So look out for that. Travis Walton. I'm thinking maybe in August we'll be covering him just because he kind of goes well with the UFOs and pop culture kind of idea because Fire in the Sky was such a transformative movie. It it had an impact on a lot of people, as did that sighting. So that's something to look forward to. And I'll be doing the Gulf Breeze UFO sightings, Ed Walters abductions with Sam from Not Alone. Look out for that, I believe, in September is when we're going to be doing that. So... You get that to look forward to, and that's pretty much what's on the horizon. Things may change here and there, but that's the general idea for what's going on. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. Also, if you want to share your personal stories... Be my guest. Send them to the email. I generally respond to everybody unless it's absolutely ridiculous. And I kind of want to get this out of the way. I can't explain to you what your UFO sighting either means, what you saw, what anything is. But if you want to send me your stories, 
I will listen to them 100%. I will read them and I will respond. So ourstrangeguys at gmail.com. Send them if you want. I love reading these stories. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. And the Facebook group, too, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. You could generally find a lot of great articles about UFOs and various subjects relating to it. So if you want more content, definitely go check out the uh, Facebook group. We do have a Patreon page. Rewards include shout-outs. Early access to the regular episodes and monthly bonus episodes called They're Strange Guys, where we look into UFO events in other countries. We have two episodes up now. We have the Falcon Lake incident with Brian and Angelo from Double Density, and we also have the Charlie Red Star sightings with Amber and Andrew from Into the Portal, and those are great episodes. We had a lot of fun with them. There's going to be more coming on the way. We're going to be doing Shag Harbor with... Zanger from the Zang This Podcast. So that'll be coming up in July or August. So if you want to support the show, there's great bonus content for you. I'll also be doing soon, I just uh, finding the subjects and such for these bonus episodes. I'm going to be doing ones called the ones and threes where uh, $1 and $3 donors get bonus episodes, uh, shorter episodes, but... Uh, covering a, a wide variety of stuff. Um, I think Lee Parrish's abduction from 1977, I believe it was, will be one of the first that I cover. And it's an interesting account that lasts for about 37 minutes before he's returned to his vehicle. So uh, that's an interesting one. Special shout out to the newest patron, Razvan Vladescu. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who has donated so far. It is very much appreciated, and it's going back into this show to make it better every single time. So thank you so much. We still have merch in the Tee Public store. You can go check that out. Uh, link will be in the show notes for this episode. I'm still got to get up those new designs, and I swear I'm going to get them up there. Uh, just... Everything being hectic as it is, it's coming. It's just slow and steady at this point. But uh, the Their Strange Skies logo will be in there soon, as well as the UFO Book Club. So look for that. I'll be posting the updates on that on social media. So just keep an eye out for that. Special thanks, as always, to the OSIC for doing the great work that they do. Roswell, it's going to be a killer one. They helped make it that. And I can't wait to share it all with you. I'm currently in the middle of uh, about three books right now with Roswell, so it's gonna be it's gonna be a killer episode. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies.
Hi, I'm Rosie Deloach. And I'm Derek Tatum. Welcome to Rabbit Hole Motel. We rabbit hole into the stories I obsess over. Strange true tales and mysteries from history, science, and the fringe. And I and a guest will wow you with our charm and sharp wit. Guiding him would lead him to a hall of records, a.k.a. the Akashic Records. Okay, this looks more like a Denny's. So long, New Jersey. Enjoy your time in the center of the earth. Come for an extended stay at Rabbit Hole Motel. Or wherever fine podcasts are served. Well, hello there, neighborinos. The handle's Mr. Most Days Off, but my friends call me Miles, and I'm the host of the Best Darn Diddly Review Show. Hello, Mr. Most Days Off. <laughs> and that's my best friend, Richie the Whiz Kid, the co host of Best Darn Diddly. Hi, Diddly Ho there, podcasterinos. The Best Darn Diddly Review Show is a weekly journey through the entire Simpsons series. Hosted by us, two guys who grew up loving The Simpsons. We discuss every diddly, every doodly, and every dope. So lace up your assassin sneakers, put on your skin-tight ski suit, and head down the slopes with us at Best Darn Diddly. Stupid, sexy, best darn diddly. You can catch us each and every Monday on bestdarndiddly.com. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Okay. You know what we should really do? What are we doing? Well, what we should do is a promo. You know, like a short little spot that other podcasters can play on their podcasts to let their listeners know where to find us. Find us for what? Find us so that they can listen to us. Do you know the five podcasts and sites people can find us on? I know at least three of them. Ooh, let's know the three that you know. Oh, well, I know Apple Podcasts. Chorus. Yeah, got, if you have the Chorus app, you're goddamn right we're on Chorus. That's us. Stitcher. You're goddamn right. What? That's that's three right there. That's three. Holy shit. We're also on Spotify. We just got on the Spotify. We just recently got on Spotify. But welcome if you're li- to Spotify. If you're listening to this in the future, we've been on Spotify for a while. We've but finally, always- Podbean! Finally, you can listen to us on Podbean, drunkdiscussions.podbean.com. Yeah, what do we do on these these sites? What 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 we, is our we post, podcast? We post podcasts. We get drunk Holy and shit. we review stuff. Holy shit! Are, do we have disruptions as we are drunk? We have discussions while we're drunk. Yes, that is one hundred percent correct. I might be a little drunk we, right now. We record live from a bar. In addition to listening to us, you can find us on Twitter at Drunk the Podcast. Be sure you're checking out our shirts and merchandise on Spreadshirt Chop.Spreadshirt.com/slash Drunk Discussions, and of course. Check us out on any of those podcasts and apps that we mentioned. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Enjoy the rest of the podcast that you're listening to. Bye-bye. Duvid Media.